The following sermon was preached by me, Jeremiah Cox, at the Elm Street Church of Christ in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is my prayer that you are edified by this study, and I encourage you to test all things by the Word of God. If you would turn to Second Peter, uh, chapter one. Second Peter, chapter one. We'll begin there this morning. It's wonderful to be with you once again and to worship our God together. It's always a joy to do that, and we count it a privilege to be able to address our God in, in this way. I've been encouraged by you, and I've been edified, and I hope that the sermon will be of the same nature for you this morning. We are continuing our study of growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as Peter commands his readers and us to do in Second Peter 3 and verse 18, we indicated that growing in the grace of God is discussed at length in chapter 1, where grace is uh, being sought to be multiplied to the individuals that Peter writes to, all Christians, and that would be accomplished in the knowledge or epinosis of Jesus. Ultimately, growing in grace is growing in the unmerited divine favor of God, and that is ultimately in the spiritual relationship that we sustain with Him in Christ. And that's a relationship which is summed up in a word, fellowship. And so we see that goal in verse 4 of Second Peter 1, that we may become partakers or those who have fellowship with and share in the divine nature. And the way we'll do that is by the knowledge of Jesus, because He gives us the blueprint, if you will, of how the divine nature, how God lives. We recently began our study of the Gospel of John, and he is described as the Word who became flesh, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, God is revealed in the man, Jesus Christ. He came and lived a life which reflected and manifested the essence of God's character. And for us to be a partaker in that nature is to imitate that nature. And we see that in the life of Christ. And what we see that in in Second Peter chapter 1 is the call to give all diligence and add to our faith, the faith that we have in Christ and that has brought us into the family of God must be grown. And so we add to our faith various virtues through verse 7. And verse 8 indicates that if these things are yours, but not only just yours, but abound, and so we ever grow in them, we'll neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge. That's the same word of verse 2 of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we will be partakers of the divine nature if these things are ours and abound. We noted that we were to add to our faith virtue, that is, this goal of moral excellence, the goal of being as Christ is, measuring up to His standard. And that goal of moral virtue will only be executed and realized through the courage, which is a more specific application and definition of the Greek word translated into virtue here in the text. It requires manliness, courage, valor to live like Christ lived. But we can't reach that goal of virtue if we don't know really specifically what inheres in the concept of moral excellence as it pertains to the life of Christ. So we need to add to our virtue knowledge. But you know, knowledge only goes as far as self-control will apply it. And so we need to add to our knowledge self-control. We indicated that this is an ascending list which logically grows out of one another. Starting with the goal of virtue, 
but also with the knowledge to attain that goal and the self-control to apply that knowledge to the attainment of that goal. And we'll see the same thing in our next study with perseverance. And so to our self-control, we are to, or to our knowledge, rather, we are to add self-control so that we can grow in the grace of God and be partakers of the divine nature and make our call and election sure and have that entrance into the eternal kingdom abundantly supplied to us, verse 10 and 11. Consider as we've been considering the definition of self-control and realize I understand that we know what self-control is, but it comes from a Greek word. And in the Bible, it's used in ways which we need to understand. Strong defines it as self-control, especially continence. And then he mentions temperance. Continence has especially to do with the sexual sense, self-control from sexual matters. Temperance has to do with, specifically, as Vine will note, matters which pertains to alcoholic beverage and abstaining from those matters. The Bible uses this word um, in the Greek translated into self-control here in 2 Peter chapter 1 in a general way, sometimes specifically, but in a general way, so Strong defines it as self-control. Art and Gingrich define it as restraint of one's emotions, impulses, or desires, self-control. We need to be in control of our emotions. They're not to be what direct us. And our impulses, we have certain impulses in the flesh, but those need to be under control. And we may have certain desires, and self-control is an expression of dominance over those things. They do not control us, we control them. Thayer defines this Greek word as self-control, the virtue of one who masters his desires and passions, especially his sensual or carnal appetites. We'll notice that in the lesson. Consider, though, vines more of a commentary on this word in the Greek. He does note that it comes from the Greek word kratos, which is strength, and that's a lot of what self-control has to do. A person who has self-control is a strength of character. The individual who has no self-control does not manifest much strength. He notes that it occurs in Acts 24 and verse 25 and Galatians 5 and verse 23 and then twice in our text of 2 Peter 1 and verse 6, and that's all that occurs in the New Testament. And he says, in all of which it is rendered temperance. The RV marginal reading has self-control, which is the preferable rendering, as we noted, as temperance is now limited to one form of self-control. And so he's speaking of a a broad concept of self-control in all matters. Notice some of the comments that Vine makes. He says, the various powers bestowed by God upon man are capable of abuse. The right, to, the right use demands the controlling power of the will under the operation of the Spirit of God. Of course, that through the revelation of God's Word. And he especially notes that in Acts 24 and verse 25, when the Word follows righteousness. We remember the Apostle Paul preaching to Felix, and he spoke of righteousness, of self-control and the judgment to come. It follows righteousness, which represents God's claims, self-control being man's response thereto. And so God demands righteousness. There's a right way of living. There's a standard in our responses, the self-control to live in that way. And then in our text of Second Peter 1 and verse 6, it follows knowledge, suggesting that what is learned requires to be put into practice. And that's especially our point this morning. We add to our knowledge self-control. It's, it's not an intellectual exercise. It's an exercise that is spiritual in nature to partake in the divine nature. And so that knowledge is only as good as our ability to control ourselves and applying it 
And so we add to our knowledge self-control, especially considering some of the things we saw in Vine's description of this word. We know that we are a person with a dual nature. There is very much an animal nature that we possess. And so there are powers within us granted by God in creation that we can abuse if we're not living the way we're called to live, knowing first that we do have an animal nature. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that's exactly what Solomon points out, that really we're no different from animals in our sight and the visual. In Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 18, Solomon said, I said in my heart concerning the condition of the sons of men, God test them, that they may see that they themselves are like animals. For what happens to the sons of men also happens to animals. One thing befalls them. As one dies, so dies the other. Surely they all have one breath. Man has no advantage over animals for all his vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and all return to dust. And he says, who knows the spirit of the sons of men which goes upward and the spirit of the animal which goes down to the earth. In chapter 12 and verse 7, he will note that the spirit returns to God who gave it. But that's not his point in this verse. His point is when you look at an animal and it dies and you look at a human being and that human being dies... You can't see the spirit of the human go upward and you can't see the spirit of the animal go downward. And so in the appearance, as far as what we see in the flesh, we're no different than animals. We die the same way and we live the same way in many ways. We have to eat to remain. We have to breathe oxygen to remain. There are various matters of life which are essential for animals and for the human being. And so we have an animal nature, but we know very good and well that we also have the nature of God. In Genesis 1 and verse 26, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And he notes the dominion that the men were given over the creation, which shows a dominance and something of value. We are greater than the animals, although we ourselves are of an animal nature and we're greater because of the image of God that we bear. But our animal nature is no different as Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 21 indicated. In Genesis 1 and verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature. And we see in chapter 2 and verse 7 that the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, of the ground. He's saying essentially the same thing in, in different phrases. The earth, the dust of the earth brings forth the living creature. And from the dust of the earth, God brought forth man. And with the physical nature then, as Vine indicated in his description of the Greek word translated into self-control, comes some power from God. Or as um, you have Art and Gingrich's definitions, there are impulses and desires within the fleshly nature that need to be sustained or, 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 or rather suppressed, if you will, in various contexts. Think of the physical appetite we have for food and water. That is certainly something that has a realm of fulfillment which is good and pure and not evil in the slightest. But those things can be abused. There is the sin of gluttony, which takes the natural appetite of food and runs with it rampantly where it goes beyond the sphere of limitations God has given us. Where an animal can eat and eat and eat and eat and eat and not sin because it has no soul, it has no image of God nature. We have the nature of God within us. And that requires a control over our animal nature. Think something that also comes to mind is the reproductive function of the human body. 
and how animals will have various sexual partners throughout life. And, and that's a natural thing within the animal world. But although we have an animal nature, we're not animals. We have the image of God. And so that natural impulse and inclination is brought under the control of God's law. And so the dual nature of man completely changes how we're supposed to live. Humanists, those in the world, those who are students and adherents of evolutionary theory will suggest that we're just animals like all the other animals. We're just a higher evolution of animal and someone else will come after us and, and we'll cease to be the dominant one on the earth. And so it's natural to just give yourself over to any physical appetite that you have. But we're created in the image of God. John 4.24 says that God is spirit. And so if we're created in the image of God and we're created with the purpose of bringing glory to God by submitting to and fulfilling the image that we're created in, that God possesses, then it's not a physical life we're to live. We're going to live a physical life, but it's, it's not a physical purpose with which we exist, but a spiritual one. And so our spiritual man will dominate the physical man. That's self-control with the Christian. We have a natural man. We have a physical man. But it is not the dominating factor. And we see that in the first command in Genesis 2.15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Here you have a natural impulse, a natural inclination to eat. Man has to eat to live. And God provides him with every tree except this one to eat. But if that man sees that tree and decides that Maybe I want to fulfill this natural need and inclination with that tree. He sins in doing so, not because it's wrong to do it physically. It's unnatural in any way, but it's wrong to do it spiritually. And so you have the dual nature of man that completely changes the way we're supposed to live. But the natural man, that is the man, not just that is a man. We're all natural men in the sense of we have a natural, physical, animal nature. The natural man is the one who is only concerned with the natural. It's only concerned with his physical body. And we see that throughout the scripture. In Philippians 3 and verse 18, the apostle Paul mentions many who walk, who are enemies of the cross of Christ. He says their end is destruction. He's speaking of spiritual destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. They set their mind on earthly things. The God they serve is not spirit. The God they serve is their physical appetite. And there are matters which are shameful for a man that has a dual nature, the image of God, as well as animal, to participate in that may be natural in the animal world, but are unlawful in the realm of godly living. And the natural man only thinks about earthly things. The natural man is only concerned with fulfilling his physical appetite. That's the very nature of the false teachers that Peter addresses in our very text of Second Peter. And in chapter 2 and verse 12, those specific false teachers and their character is demonstrated and described. He says, These like natural brute beasts, made to be caught and destroyed, speak evil of things they do not understand, and will utterly perish in their own corruption, and will receive the wages of unrighteousness as those who count it pleasure to carouse in the daytime. They are spots and blemishes, carousing in their own deceptions while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, enticing unstable souls. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. I want us to notice the description, especially in verse 12. They are like natural brute beasts. The word brute in the Greek is a word which means irrational or unreasonable. 
And so where animals just do what is natural for them to do without even really thinking about it, they don't, they don't reason with themselves how, how this may be better than this and, and this may be more advantageous in the long run than this. They just do what is their natural impulse to do. They don't put much thought into it. They're created to just function ultimately as machines to a degree. They are animals. These are acting in that way. They're not thinking about eternal things. They're not thinking about eternal consequences. They're not thinking about the eternal law of God. They're like natural brute beasts. They just want to do what they want to do. And they're made to be caught and destroyed. They're running into a trap. He says that in verse 19. They promise the people liberty, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. They're acting in such a way that is devoid of reason and therefore devoid of self-control and is destined for destruction spiritually. Verse 14 indicates the way they give themselves over to the natural appetite. They have eyes full of adultery. They can't stop sinning. And so where the physical body has its components that naturally are inclined to the sexual appetite, the spiritual man is to subdue those inclinations, yet these people are only thinking of their physical appetite, just give themselves over to it to the extent that they can't even look at a woman without lusting after her. They're individuals completely given over to the flesh, and as such, they're devoid of self-control. They don't even know how to control themselves. This is not how the Christian is to live. They gain knowledge so that they can control themselves according to that knowledge, which gets us to some of the things that Vine pointed out. God has given us various powers that are capable of abuse, but the right use demands the controlling power of the will under the operation of the Spirit of God. And so God created man with a dual nature. And while we have a dual nature and that completely changes the way we're to live, in other words, not to live as the other animals, He shows us how that is to be, how we function as one who possesses a dual nature. And He reveals His Word through the Spirit to regulate our living When we inhabit the flesh, there are going to be matters which we desire to do and participate in, but the Spirit of God keeps us from doing those things. There are restraints put on human beings by the Spirit of God. In Galatians chapter 5, we read of this concept in verse 16, where Paul says, walk in the Spirit, that is after the Spirit's instruction, after the Spirit's teaching. You shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. The word of God is not meant to take away the consequences where we can freely express and investigate and 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 look at and satisfy those physical appetites without restraint where we're free from the consequences. It's actually given to regulate our living. You don't live like everyone else. You don't live like the animal world. You live like God has commanded you to live. And you list the work of the flesh, which are evident in all of these matters, which a lot of things include natural inclinations that have to be curbed by the Spirit's teaching. And then he lists the fruit of the Spirit. And so self-control is not just a negative thing, it's a positive thing. You control yourself by abstaining from fleshly lust, and you control yourself by acting the way God has called us to act. But notice in verse 23, part of that is self-control. And in verse 24, that's demonstrated. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And so it doesn't necessarily come naturally but it comes through a decision to not do the things that we wish. 
as verse 17 indicates. We see now and we know now that this is sinful. As Paul mentioned in Romans chapter 7, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. And now that the law had said you shall not covet, I'm not going to covet even though it might be a natural inclination. It might be something I'm drawn to to hoard wealth and covet others' wealth, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to control that impulse because God has said it's sinful. That's what we do. That's why we live the way we live. But the natural man who is focused on the physical things doesn't receive the spirit's revelation. The Apostle Paul emphasizes that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, speaking of the revelation of the wisdom of God through the Spirit. He says, These things we speak not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are full in foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discern. He who is spiritual judges all things, yet he is not rightly judged by anyone who has known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Some would suggest that the natural man who does not receive the things of the Spirit of God is the man who has not been directly operated on in a miraculous way by the Holy Spirit. That is how the Calvinist will read this verse. That's not what he's saying. I want us to notice that he says this natural man doesn't receive the saying as a spiritual Spirit of God, and he uses a synonym for that. The carnal man in verse 1 of chapter 3. I can't speak to you as spiritual, but as carnal. And he calls them carnal because their mind is not directed by the Spirit of God. They're not concerned with spiritual living. They're concerned with carnal living, which is why there was divisions and competitions among themselves. He says the natural man can't receive the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him. And that's what the world thinks. That's how the world thinks. It's foolish to live in such a way that regulates your living, that, that keeps you from doing what you want to do. That's foolish. I just want to, to live for the flesh. I want to fulfill all my desires. They're my desires. It's my body. It's my life. I can do what I want. And it's foolish to think otherwise that some invisible man in the sky can tell me what to do. That's foolish. And so he can't receive the things of the Spirit of God. He can't understand them. He can't apply them. It's impossible to please God if we're thinking with the mind of the flesh. Apostle Paul mentions that in Romans 8 and verse 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. They're only concerned with the physical appetite. But those who live according to the Spirit, that is, they're spiritual beings and living according to that, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit of God. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. And notice this, the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, because God is spirit. And so if all we're thinking about is what we've been given in the natural creation and not our spiritual man, it will be impossible to please God who is spirit. And it's really because there is no desire. And if there's no desire to please God, then there won't be any control of self. And so we have to have that desire. And that's where self-control ultimately comes from. Here you've got God's teaching and self-control is the response to the direction of God. And what it does is it springs from the aim or the goal of virtue that we started our list with in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 5. But ultimately, the fellowship with the divine nature and the direction of knowledge revealed by the Spirit of God to get us to that goal and to fulfill our aim. We see that in 2 Peter 
chapter 1, he says, add to your faith virtue. There's the goal. I have an aim of being like Christ is, of being in fellowship and being a partaker of the divine nature. But in order to achieve that goal, I've got to know what that has to do with. I've got to know what's included in such a life. And so I add to myself or add to my virtue knowledge. And then self-control comes from that desire to partake of the divine nature and therefore will apply that knowledge and control of self. And the world thinks again that this is foolish. They don't understand this. We have a goal that is spiritual and eternal in nature, but they not looking at the spiritual and eternal things think it's foolish that we do what we do. In Romans 1 and verse 24, demonstrating the Gentiles' sinful life, it says that because they had these desires, God gave them up to the uncleanness of the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. God gave them over to their lust. In other words, they have a desire not to fulfill spiritual goals and to fulfill spiritual obligations and to secure the spiritual life. They have a goal to fulfill any fleshly appetite. And if that's their goal and that's what they're blinded by, God's going to let them do what they want to do. Free will. And so they're only concerned with and they're consumed by the physical appetite. And therefore, when they see us abstaining from things, which are only natural, they'll say, they think it's strange. They think it foolish. We see in 1 Peter 4 and verse 3 an example of this. And the Apostle Peter is writing to restrain his audience from living a life of immorality. And he says, We have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And he says, In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation speaking evil of you. That's exactly the society we live in today. Why would we ever hold off from ourselves those matters which are pleasurable. And there is pleasure in them, or else it wouldn't be a temptation. Why would we ever keep ourselves from fulfilling that desire? That's strange. That's different. That's peculiar. That's weird. But it comes from that self-control in those matters. It comes from the aim of fellowship with the divine nature. We know that's eternal. We know that's lasting. We know that's our purpose with which we have been given as we're placed on earth. And we're not going to be blinded and deceived and confused by these physical and temporal pleasures and temptations to fulfill the fleshly lust. John points that out in his first epistle in chapter 2 and verse 15 when he tells them not to love the world or the things in the world because if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. He mentions all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, eyes, and the pride of life. It's not of the Father, but is of the world. And he notes the reason why we would control ourselves in such matter. Because the world is passing away in the lust of it. You won't even desire it after it's gone. The desire is not even going to exist anymore. So why would you fulfill the desire now when what you desire isn't going to be there, much less the very desire for it? But he who does the will of God abides forever. That's the partaker of the divine nature. When we do the will of God, when we love God, we are in fellowship with God. The very early part of chapter 2 talks about how we abide in him and with him. And the one who says such would walk as he walked, would keep his commandments, would do his word and his will. Because those things are spiritual matters of an eternal nature. We understand that our inheritance is incorruptible and undefiled And it's reserved in heaven for us. It doesn't fade away. 
Why would we ever exchange that for things of a temporal nature? And so there comes the self-control. I'm not going to give myself over to these things because it's not worth it. God has told me and shown me it's not worth it. God has told me to abstain from it. God has told me rather to lay up heavenly treasure by doing His will. So self-control springs from that goal and it is directed by the spiritual knowledge But we need to also understand that it is a God-given ability, but it's something which must be decided upon. We've got to be decisive about our life, that we are going to control ourselves. We learn what we learn, not so that we can forget about it when we leave. We learn what we learn so that we can apply it to our life. And that self-control will only come from practice. We've got to develop that self-control. It is a God-given ability, and that's in the very essence of the commands of God. In Genesis chapter 2, when he gave that first command, don't eat of this tree, even though you can eat of all other trees, there's the presupposition of free will and ability to control self in the exercise of free will. God doesn't ever require of us or restrict us from something that we cannot possibly achieve according to his command. We've got to understand it is ability given to us. There's nothing that we cannot control ourselves in that God requires, but it's got to come through intense focus and decisiveness and practice throughout life. There are things which self-control requires. I would suggest to you that self-control requires humility. It requires humility in the realm of recognizing our own illicit desires. In James chapter 1 and verse 13, the The writer of James speaks about temptation and he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. And then he gets to the origin of it. Where does it come from? We know it comes from Satan, but that's not even the purpose here. A lot of people kind of place the blame on Satan. And while he has blame, it's really not his fault ultimately because we had a choice. And this is what James points out in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has been conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin uh, is full grown, it brings forth death. I think one of the struggles that we have with controlling ourselves sometimes is that we're not honest with ourselves. We don't humbly submit to the fact that this is our struggle. So-and-so may have a struggle over here, but this is my struggle. And really self-control is relative in that regard. Because we don't all struggle controlling ourselves in the same areas. What may be a great temptation to me may not be a great temptation to you. But vice versa is true as well. And that requires humility. I recognize this is my problem. I recognize that this is my desire. I recognize that Jeremiah struggles in this area. And it's nobody's fault except my own if I don't control myself in that area. But if we don't have that humility and honesty of realizing where our struggles are personally, that's when we become enticed. We get trapped because we fool ourselves, we deceive ourselves into thinking, that's not really a problem that I have. And then there we are. Let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. First Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. It takes a humility to recognize our own individual desires and then it takes a humility to recognize our place before God. In verse 21, he says, Therefore lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. It's God who decides what I do or don't do 
And I receive that with meekness, a humility that recognizes God is in control and therefore I'm not going to resist him. I'm just going to do what he says. That takes great humility. Self-control doesn't come without that humility. James addressed it in chapter 4 and verse 7. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He will lift you up. Don't rebel against Him. Don't do what you want to do, but restrain yourself by His will, humbling yourself under His mighty hand. And that's when He exalts you to the position of acceptance and a partaking of the divine nature, of growing in that grace. You know, that's essentially what James points out in chapter 4 and verse 15 when he's talking about those who make plans without God in their mind. He said, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live to do this and that. That's an expression of humility. It's an expression and recognition that God is in control. He's the sovereign being. He's the one that is the lawgiver, as he stated in verses 11 and 12. He's the one which tells me what to do. He's the one who tells me what I can't do. And I humbly accept that. But just that surface recognition and intellectual assent to the fact that God is in control is not enough because he's given us the free will to resist his control. So saying, if the Lord wills, I should live to do this and that is an acceptance that he is in control and then assuming the submissive position under his control. That's self-control, but it requires humility. It's not about what I want. It's not about what I think. It's about what God wants and thinks. And there comes our next requirement. Self-control requires self-denial, which are two matters which play intimately together In Matthew, the 16th chapter and verse 21, it speaks after the great confession was made by Peter and the rest of the apostles that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. That's that's an absolute. He must because it's God's will. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. But notice Peter's reaction. He took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, that this should not happen to you. And I want us to notice Jesus' response. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. You're not thinking about what God wants. You're just thinking about your desire. They certainly had a misunderstanding of the nature of the kingdom and the nature of the Messiah's role at this point. And they would even till Acts chapter 1, until the gospel would eventually be preached on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2 of Acts. But that didn't keep Jesus from rebuking him. He said, I must do these things. It's according to God's will. It's necessary for your benefit and for the submission to God's will. And you are not mindful of those things. You're thinking about yourself. And this is where these words come in. In verse 24, Jesus then said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You need to stop thinking about the things of men. If you're going to follow me, this is where I'm going, to God's will, not my own. As he said in Matthew 26, 39, O Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He had a different desire to forego this cup of anguish and the cross, but he controlled himself. It's your will that must be done. And if you're going to follow after me, you're going to have to deny yourself just the same. Take up your own cross of suffering and drink your own cup of anguish and following my will. The word for deny in the Greek means, as Thayer defines it, to forget oneself, lose sight of oneself, 
and one's own interests. You know, self-control requires not forgetting ourselves completely, but seeing ourselves through the lens of God's control. We're not thinking about what we want. We're not thinking about what we desire. We're thinking about what God wants. And then, lastly, self-control requires self-discipline, which again is very intimately associated with it, but it's not necessarily a synonym. You're only going to control yourself if you have a discipline about yourself. And this is what the Apostle Paul demonstrates in 1 Corinthians the ninth chapter, and he uses athletic imagery as he often does. In verse 24, the Apostle Paul says this, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Thus, I, Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should have become disqualified. I want us to notice first what we've already pointed out in our previous point, that self-control comes from an aim or a goal of fellowship with the divine nature, and then the knowledge which leads us in that direction. That's exactly what he says in verse 24. We're running to receive a prize, so run in the way that you would obtain it. That's going to require self-discipline, as a physical race would. These people that were involved in the Isthmian Games, much like the Olympics, were people who would forego certain matters that wouldn't help them in their exercising and training for that event. And so if it wouldn't help them, it would only hurt them, it would only keep them back in somewhere another. I'm going to keep myself off from that. If it were the time of season where we're not about to have and participate in these sporting events, then I would give myself to them. But it's the time of training, and I want that prize, and so it's going to completely alter every day of my life and the way I live. And so with that goal established comes the establishment of self-control in our focus on that goal. Verse 26 shows priority. I run thus, not with uncertainty. I don't run in a zigzag. I don't run in circles. I run the course. I know the path. And so I run the shortest point from A to B. I'm going to get there. I'm not messing around. I have an aim. And I fight not as one who beats the air. I'm not, I'm not shadow boxing. I'm not throwing meaningless punches. I'm going to land those punches. He's just speaking about priority and focus. If I want that prize, I'm going to do whatever it takes in controlling myself to get that prize. And that's where verse 27 comes in. It is an expression of that temperance of verse 25 or self-control. This is how he gets to that self-control. I discipline my body and bring it under subjection. I have an animal part of my being, my body, my physical body. There is a carnal appetite. There are temptations to fulfill the desires of the flesh, but I bring my body under subjection. And he's speaking about himself, bringing himself under subjection, but it comes with the dual nature. My spirit subdues my body. My spirit is the dominant factor in my life. And really his description is pretty graphic. The word discipline is a compound word in the Greek. And it literally means to strike under the eye. It's from a word which means the part of the face below the eye, and then a word which means under an eye. And so, as Vine defines it, hence, it means to beat the face black and blue, to give a black eye. And it's used metaphorically here 
in 1 Corinthians 9.27 of Paul's suppressive treatment of his body in order to keep himself spiritually fit. So my body may be suffering, but it's for the advantage and betterment of my soul. And he's not talking of asceticism. He's not talking of self-mutilation as a form of some inherent virtue. He's just speaking of foregoing matters of the flesh and holding yourself off from desires of the flesh, knowing that they do nothing for your spirit. In fact, many times they're very damaging. And he says, I discipline my body. I beat it black and blue so I can bring it under subjection. That is a Greek word, which means to be a slave driver or to enslave. So to subdue. In other words, what Paul is saying is I do everything within my power and ability that God has given me and according to his spirit's direction, that is what the word of God says, to make my body my slave, even if it requires me beating it black and blue. I bring it into subjection. I do whatever it takes to make sure I'm not using it for useless purposes that are taking my aim away from the crown that I'm wanting to win. I don't run with uncertainty. I don't box as beating the air, but I make sure I'm focused and my body is under my control. It's not controlling me. In Romans chapter 6 and verse 13, it's put this way. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I want us to note verse 25 again, where he says, everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. The New American Standard Bible says, exercises self-control in all things. I want to especially stress the all things. In this context of 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he's not speaking of sin, inherent things of an, of an inherent sinful nature. He's actually speaking of liberties. In chapter 10 and verse 23, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify there were people that were running with uncertainty and there were people who were fighting as beating the air because while they would suggest that their goal is heaven, they were abusing their liberties to the detriment of their brethren and therefore to the detriment of their own soul. And Paul uses himself as an example in chapter 9 of foregoing liberties for not only the sake of others but for the sake of himself lest he himself should become disqualified. If he does something that is completely within his right to do, but it causes him to kind of go off of the path of getting to heaven, or it causes him to cause another to meander off the path of getting to heaven and causes another to falter, then he is inhibiting himself. He is, he is prohibiting himself from doing what God has called him to do. He is weighing himself down with unnecessary matters. And so self-control doesn't just come from don't do what God said not to do and do what God said to do. But it comes from even those everyday matters in the realm of liberty, which will eventually have an effect on our spiritual walk with God. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1 says, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Seeing in the same context of an athletic event, he makes a distinction between weight and sin. Certainly don't sin, but there are weights. There are matters that aren't, aren't sinful in and of themselves. It may be your use of time, the type of job that you have, the type of relationships that you have, the, the activities that you do each and every day, the kind of recreation and the times of recreation that you're involved in. The Christian doesn't just live the way he wants to live in all matters. 
all the time fulfilling each and every desire that he has. Sometimes we've got to learn to just tell ourselves, no, I've had enough of this area. Maybe it's time to study my Bible a little bit. I've had enough of this. It's time to now pray. Or maybe I, I could very well go. I have the complete power to go and do this thing and, and be involved in this event. But I could be putting that time and that effort and energy into a greater sense of purpose. And since I'm wanting to get to heaven, I'm going to control myself and regulate myself and use this time and energy in a more wise and prudent fashion. That's self-control. Self-control is not just doing the minimum that God calls us to. But it's laying aside the weight as well. In Proverbs 16 and verse 32, wisdom tells us that he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. In other words, it takes a lot to control yourself. Greater than the mighty, greater than the one who overtakes a city. Self-control is not easy. It's a massive challenge and therefore it requires massive focus Massive meditation on our ultimate goal. Self-control is to be added to our knowledge if that knowledge is going to be effective. And the goal of virtue that we have, that we add knowledge to to fulfill that goal, it's as far away as what self-control will allow the knowledge of God's will to accomplish in our lives. If we have no self-control, we're not working on that self-control. We're not disciplining our body and bringing it under subjection if we're not regulating our lives by the will of God, it doesn't matter how much we know and it doesn't matter how much we claim to be, we will not partake in the divine nature and we will not have an abundant entrance supplied to us. Self-control is a vital part of Christian living. Without it, we cannot achieve the goal of heaven. If you're here this morning and I've not obeyed the gospel, that will require in and of itself self-control. You've got to control your urge to leave this place and put off obedience to the gospel once again. And you've got to submit yourself to the God of heaven and earth. He's given you this time as an opportunity. And you can use this time in whatever way you desire. But self-control will bring it under the control of God to obey His will. And we offer you that opportunity this morning to be baptized into Christ for the remission of your sins. There may be someone here as well who has obeyed the gospel and is of, of need of some spiritual assistance that we can give you. And if that is the case, we invite you as well to come forward as we stand and sing the song that was selected.